You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come upon a difficult passage, we pray that your spirit would minister to us and that my words would indeed be your words and that I might decrease, and that you might increase, and that the eyes of our hearts might behold Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians uh, 5 is my favorite chapter in the Bible to preach on. Uh, that's a joke. Uh, and, uh, and I realize that there are people of varying ages here, and uh, varying places on their spiritual journey, and I want you to know that I'm aware of that as, as we preach through uh, chapters 5 and 6 and even into chapter 7. But that being said, one of the things that normally happens when we get to a passage like this in the Bible is we we play the get-out-of-jail-free card, and we just move beyond it rather than actually stopping and hearing what God might say to us, and even the most difficult bits. And as we're preaching through 1 Corinthians, uh, we don't have the luxury to say, well, we're going to talk about this, but we're not going to talk about this. I suppose we do have the luxury, but that would be dishonest, because if we had just skipped over chapters 5 and 6, you would rightfully say, I see what you've done. Uh, You've completely and totally avoided uh, the tough bits. And I think that many of us, even me, get to this part of Scripture and sit through a sermon on it and get really, really uncomfortable, which actually means that it's wholly appropriate that we should talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable because it hits so close to home. And so as we go through this, uh, I'm I'm struggling through it with you. Uh, But let's take a look at... 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now Paul has finished talking about uh, the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be a steward of his grace, to be one who puts their trust in the cross of Christ, what it means to be a servant of Christ, what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he really goes from preaching to meddling. He says, I want to get real specific about what's going on in the life of the Corinthian church because I've heard reports that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. Now he doesn't go into detail as to what is going on with this man, but it seems to say that there is a man who has taken up some sort of cohabitory relationship with his stepmother. We don't know if his father's dead, if they're divorced, whether this guy is married, or what the deal is. But nonetheless, we know that he's engaging in an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. And not only is the Corinthian church not saying anything about it, although Chloe and her people have written to Paul and said, you need to know what's going on. And it's not as if the Corinthians are reading this and saying, "Uh, well, who is he talking about? Uh, They know exactly who he is talking about. And he goes even farther to say that it's not even tolerated amongst the pagans. If you listen to the early sermons in this series, you would have heard that the Corinthian church was notoriously licentious. To the point that to be a Corinthian in the Mediterranean world in Paul's day was was a word used to talk about about somebody who really had no morals whatsoever and just kind of did whatever they wanted. And Paul is saying, you're actually worse than the Corinthians. 
And the Corinthians had the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, or better yet, the goddess of lust in their culture on the high mount there in Corinth. And those women that worked in the temple serving Aphrodite in the day would fill the streets at night to work with the Corinthians. And yet Paul is saying is that even the Corinthians look upon what's going on in the life of the Christian church and think, that's pretty bad. And friends, when the Corinthians say, that's pretty bad, it must be really bad. I mean, Cicero, the great Roman historian, even writes against the very practice that Paul is pointing out in Corinth, saying that for the Romans, this is an unbearable thing. And yet it's happening in the life of the church. How is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, actually, the little heading, if you had your Bibles open and you have the little ESV version that we have, the headings say sexual immorality defiles the church. That's actually not the right heading because that's not really what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about so much of this man and his stepmother as much as he is talking about what does it look like for us to live together as Christians, especially when you have really difficult situations and really difficult conversations and really difficult uh, issues that hit so close to home. And he says that. He says, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's talking about the Christian church. He's not talking about this person as other, but the person who was among you. And so really the issue is how do we live together as Christians? Because what was happening in the Corinthian church was an abuse of freedom, which is to say that people thought that because they were Christians, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. If you are free in Christ, you're free from the bondage of sin and death, and you're even free from the bondage of the law. Now, the way they were translating is that, that is saying, I can pretty much do whatever I want, and Jesus doesn't really care much about it. And Paul says that is to misuse the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Now, the fancy word, uh, that's how uh, Matt Schneider said it at the 9 o'clock. The fancy word for this is antinomianism, which simply means to be against the law-ism. That is, anything in the Bible that would regulate the way that we live our lives has no bearing whatsoever on the Christian life. But the great irony about this is that I'm not sure that I've ever met a real antinomian. I've never met anyone who lives life with complete and total abandonment and freedom. My youngest brother is as close as I've ever seen it. <laughs> and yet, what i found is the people that are rebelling most against God's law actually demonstrate in their life that they're completely captive to God's law. And it's that captivity that is causing them the severe allergy to God's law. And so actually they're not operating in freedom, they're operating in reaction. I mean, have you ever done this? I mean, we do this all the time. But we don't have to learn this. It's ingrained in our hearts. But when I was growing up, and my mother would say, you need to go clean your room. I knew she was right. I knew it's something that I had to do. But did it make me want to clean my room? No, it made me want to burn it to the ground, right? 
Now, as I'm sitting in my, on my bed saying, I'm not going to clean my room, was I operating in freedom? Not at all. Quite the opposite. And that's exactly what's happening in the life of the Corinthian church. And not just that, but the inability of the church to care enough for its members to say, brother, you're in bondage, sister, you're in bondage, and you're headed toward your own destruction. And what kind of lack of concern and care does it demonstrate to let people simply go off and do whatever it is that they want to do? This is not how it works in our families, does it? When you have someone that you love, a friend or a family member, that is really going off the deep end, do you say... Well, it's their choice. If that's how they want to live their life, so be it. Now, there may come a point where you've intervened so much where you think, I don't know what else to do, but it never begins at that. It's always, what can I do to help this person get back on track and end their self-destructive behaviors? And your anger and your interest is proportional to your love for them. And that's the funny thing about relationships is that if a couple comes in and plops down on my couch and they say we've got marriage problems and they are fighting like cats and dogs, I inwardly smile and sit back in my chair. Now why do I smile when they're sitting there arguing with one another? They're only arguing because they care. And the more severe the argument and the harsher the words show me, man, they really care about the situation. The great fear that I have is when a couple comes in and sits on the couch and at least one of them says, you know, I'm just here to make them happy. I really don't care anymore. The opposite of love is actually apathy. Not anger. And what the Corinthians are doing is the very opposite of love. They're exercising apathy toward their fellow Christians. And this is what Paul is going about it in the most direct of ways. And he says, look, even though I'm absent, I really am present. And I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you will deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Now, that latter part we're going to get to in a little bit when Paul says to purge them out. But what Paul is saying here is that when you're around this person, it's the elephant in the room. You know what's going on, and yet you're not saying anything to the brother. But the great difficulty comes as to how we talk about this kind of stuff with one another. The first thing that we have to do is he says this back in verse 2, Ought you not rather to mourn? If grief... And mourning is not evident in the situation, then you and I have no right to bring up the issue with the brother or sister. Because it means that we're coming at it from a high handed position. It means that we think that God grades on the curve. It means that we think, man, I might be a bad sinner, but they're real bad. But what we know, biblically speaking, is that there are no gradations of sinners. It's not as if that person is farther from the Lord than I am or that that person is even closer to the Lord than I am. But we're all in the same boat. And so if the situation is not grieving you, if it's not causing you to mourn, then you should take a step back. 
Now, Paul is being very clear here that we ought to judge those who are in the life of the church and not those who are outside the life of the church, which is the complete opposite of the way that we do things in the church. Man, it's real easy to to go after the Kardashians. Uh, It's real easy to go after all the stuff that's going on in the world and to say, man, they've really gotten it wrong. Or to look at Washington, D.C., and this might actually be objectively true, what a mess. If only there were more people like me in D.C., things would be much better. Paul says that's actually not our business. Our business is to judge those that are within. Where we always are very very able and willing to judge those outside of the church, we're almost completely unwilling to judge those within the life of the church. And people will rightly say, but I've read what Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount. Judge not that you you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And we often use that as a proof text to not judge one another, to not show concern for one another, to not care for one another. But we, not, we, we stop reading because then Jesus goes on to say, why do, you see it will be measured to, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, no, no, we ought to be able to judge one another within the life of the church. But here's the thing about specks and logs in our own eyes. Has anyone ever been to the beach and gotten a little tiny grain of sand in your eye? I mean, the other day, I got something in my eye, and I, it, everything came to a screeching halt in our household. You know, I was like, somebody's got to help me get this thing out of my eye. Now, what was it? I mean, the teeniest, tiniest little thing. But what does it feel like in your eye? It feels like a log. And so what Jesus is saying, and what Paul is echoing is that if you're going to start pointing out things in other people's lives, just be sure that the sin that is in your life bothers you in the same way that a little speck of dust would bother you in your eye. Do you understand what he's saying? Is that you have to be brought to a place of humility and grievance. And when you feel the urgent nature of the own sin, time stops and you do everything in your power in order to deal with that which is in your own eye. And Paul is saying the same thing. If you can't feel it in your own life, if you're not self-aware enough to know what you're dealing with, then you have no business going to the brother or sister who would rightly say, you've got a speck in your eye that it turns out is actually a plank and you need to deal with it before you come and talk to me. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 lays all of this out. It's not as if you say in an anonymous post online or you put up on Facebook uh, something that would lead other people to believe that you're judging them. But Jesus actually says that you should go to this brother or sister in private and have a conversation with them. And if they still, if they say, well, I think you're wrong and you can go jump in a lake, then you bring two people. And if they still won't listen, then you bring a group of people. And if they still won't listen, then bring it before the life of the church. 
And all of this is done, why? So that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, there's a, uh, an interesting uh, line uh, that we say in our Ash Wednesday service, which was just this past Ash Wednesday. And it says this, It was also a time, that is Lent, when those who because of notorious sins had been separated from the body of the faithful were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness and restored to the fellowship of the church. Now, the funny thing about it is, is that the prayer book speaks about it as if it's something that you would experience at Colonial Williamsburg. Like this is the way they did it in olden times. But actually with Paul and with Jesus and what we're talking about now is that no, if God's word is enduring forever, then it applies just as much to us. But the ultimate aim of all of this is what? That they would be restored to the fellowship of the church, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. That's the ultimate goal. If you're just trying to get a whammy, if you're just trying to crush them, if you're just trying to make sure that they don't get away with anything, then you ought not to say anything because your motives are completely contrary to what the Bible tells us ought to do. Now, why is Paul saying you ought to get this person out of the life of the church? Because of its effect on the church. For those of you that have children or have experienced this, when one comes down with the flu, what is your immediate concern? We're all going down. And the funny thing is, is you may not actually have the flu, but you begin to convince yourself what? You have it. Like all of a sudden, <clears throat> I get a little, <clears throat> I'm done. All right, I'm done. Get the Z-Pack, get the Tamiflu, uh, whatever it is, let's, let's make it happen. And Paul is saying we ought to have the same reaction, actually, when it comes to sin. That when you have somebody in your midst whose behavior is actually bringing the church down, and that's something to think about. All right, this is somebody whose sin is affecting the entire church. That, so that's the motive he's talking about here. But when that happens, it begins to affect each and every single one of us in a way that is to our own spiritual detriment. And so in that way, we ought to say to this person, you're really dragging down the life of the church. Now, this is easier said than done. And I have done this in the life of my own ministry. I've done it even here at the Advent. And I'll give you the, ins the instance in which it happened. Uh, there was a member of our church who uh, was really being uh, ugly and mean and nasty to any number of parishioners, was engaged in malicious gossip and was really spiritually murdering people. Uh, and a lot of people would say, well, that's just the way that they are. And, and we ought not to think anything of it. Except other people were experiencing this. And do you think they felt the same way? Not in the least. So I went to this person. And this person said, well, you and the clergy are ruining my church. Well, that gives an indication of another problem that we have. Uh, that any of us would think that the Advent is our, our sole possession. But I said to this person, I said, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way about the clergy, but what are you going to do when we're all in heaven together? And this person said, oh, you won't be. <laughs> uh, and this is, is a, we're about to go, and this, these conversations always happen just as before church starts. Uh, and and then here's just a little, a little footnote. If you have anything awful to say to me, you're welcome to say it. Just wait till 12.05. 
or, or Monday morning, give it, give it a night, <laughs> uh, and, and then call me and say, hey, I've got a real bone to pick with you, but don't slime me as I'm about to go into the service. And um, so this person said, oh, y'all are going to hell. And uh, anyway, anywho, uh, and so I said to that person, I said, you know, if that's how you feel, we'd be making a mockery of the table if we came and had communion together. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think that you ought, to not, ought not to come to the table. And what you need to know that is if you do come to the table, that I'm not going to be able to partake of the table. And for about eight months, I wasn't able to go to the table in that service because this person continued to present themselves. Now, do you see how that worked? I mean, in some sense, what I was doing is I wasn't saying you have to leave, but I was saying that if you persist in this, you need to understand that you're giving yourself over to the enemy and that you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself, and now that person is dead. Just kidding, they didn't die. They're, they just. <laughs> but that's actually the effect of it. I had you, didn't I? Uh, but that's actually the effect of it, that it begins to poison the entire congregation. Now, here's the other hard part about it, is that when you begin to say to individuals, you have to leave the fellowship of the church, when they left the fellowship in Corinth, where did they go? Where did they go? Do they go to Canterbury Methodist or St. Luke's or Independent Presbyterian? No, they didn't. Because there was only one church in Corinth. They weren't able to go anywhere else. And so the impetus for them to be reconciled to the body of Christ was felt deeply. There was an urgency to it. But in our day and age... If we were to actually do this, people would simply move on to another congregation and take up residence there. And that's to miss the point. And so what it means to live life together is it means to live life together. There may be times when we have to say to someone, your behavior is so destructive to the life of the Advent that you have to leave but in most cases, and this is what Paul is saying, is that if the ultimate end is to reconcile the brother or sister to the life of the church and to the Lord Jesus Christ, then to keep them actually inside the life of the church, but isolated in such a way that we're not letting them get away with their bad behavior, but we're actually ministering to them in a way that is effective, is the ultimate goal. I mean, what we would like to see in all of our lives when it comes to this is what happens in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, isn't it? That we want people to get to the point where they realize, they look down and they see the pigsty and they see the pods and they realize, how in the world did I get here? And I need to come home. I need to come home. And I hope if you're there this morning... And I hope if, if we ever exercise this kind of discipline in the life of our church, that when we see that notorious sinner coming home there on the horizon, that we'll hike up our robes, and in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we'll be the first to greet them and to say, Welcome home, brother. Welcome home, sister. For you who once were lost is now found. And that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are reconciled but above all, you are reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. A difficult passage 
for us to grapple with indeed, uh, but one that hits so close to home uh, in the life of our church and in our own individual lives, uh, but that we would be motivated for the right reasons to exercise this sort of discipline that Paul talks about and that the Lord Jesus Christ talks about, that we would feel grief over our own sin and the sin of our brother and sister, and above all, that we would seek reconciliation between us and them and they and God. Let us pray. Lord, it is so easy uh, to judge those outside of the church rather than allowing your word to work on us in the life of the church. But Lord, we thank you that it is in your kindness that we find repentance. And Lord, for those of us who have strayed and feel like we can't be honest about where we are in the life of the church, that we would be the kind of church that allows us that honesty where we can go to brothers and sisters and be vulnerable and say, I'm struggling with this whether it be drunkenness, whether it be sexual immorality, whether it be gossip, uh, whether it be any sort of behavior that doesn't bring honor to your name. Uh, Lord, whatever it is that we might be able to confess it to one another and that we would be met with grace and forgiveness and compassion. And Lord, for those of us that persist in behavior that brings dishonor to your name, Lord, that you would convict our hearts so that we might turn to you and live. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.